Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, uh, you know, as Andrew said, we are on a series, week three, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Come on. Say that with me real quick. Emotionally healthy spirituality. There we go. Say it ten times. And, uh, you know. <coughs> the other one is uh, Peter Scazzaro. Scazzaro, Scazzaro, Scazzaro. You know, I've... Yes. Uh, if, uh, if you are new to the series, uh, welcome. You know, uh, welcome. My name is Andre. I'm the pastor here. Good morning. Welcome to our church. Uh, if you're new to this series, I really ha- want to highly encourage you to... Uh, jump on the first two sermons. We have it up on our Facebook. Uh, this is designed as a six-piece meal. Uh, and so, you know, make sure you get all the pieces uh, as well. And so, you know, we've been on this series for the last two weeks. This is week three. Come on. And uh, we plan to go for another three, if not four more, you know. And so, uh, this is our, uh, the beginning of a journey towards our emotional health uh, in this church. You know, in this church, we believe that our uh, transformation uh, can happen in a moment, but more often than not, it happens as a process. Yeah, it happens as a process, you know, and the way we commit to that process is we take small steps, small little changes. We practice certain uh, concepts and certain things that the Bible teaches us to practice, and in doing so, in doing so consistently, we grow more into the image of our Savior. Come on, you agree with me? Okay, maybe this might work better. Compound interest Christianity, yeah? You know, small little investments that play out over the long run. And so this is our, the beginning of this journey, this practice of emotional health. And I believe this is something that we will uh, go on for like the next few years. You know, some, some of y'all might be of the opinion that uh, at the end of six weeks, you'll be all emotionally healthy, you know. Uh, sorry to burst your bubble, but, uh, you know, some of these things, you know, it take, might take, weeks, it might take months, it might take years to work out, but as long as we're committed to that process, all things will work together well. Amen? Yeah. Alright, so week three. Um, I'm just going to jump right in, okay? Uh, in week one, I, I shared on the story of uh, Andrew Stockline. How many of you are familiar with that story? Andrew Stockline, and then Andrew Stockline is a pastor, mega church pastor in the U.S., um, you know, really high-profile pastor, really young, really gifted. He was 30 years old, became a lead pastor of a church of thousands. And uh, midway into uh, his first year of pastoring, he actually had a nervous breakdown, and it was so severe that he ended up in the hospital. And the church uh, eldership put him through a four-month uh, compulsory sab- sabbatical. And so he took four months off from church. And then he came back uh, uh, after his four-month sabbatical and began a series on emotional health. And so he began a series on emotional health. He thought from the life of uh, Elijah, thought about uh, suicide and depression and gave stats about it. And 12 days after that sermon, he took his own life in his church office while his wife and his three boys were out playing the playground. And I'm not sure whether you're uh, up to date with the news this week, but this week, uh, another pastor, uh, Andrew Stockline would be the one on the left, another pastor named Jim Howard, uh, you know, he... and. Uh, the, the story is so eerily similar. And Jim Howard is the lead pastor of a church of 6,000. And uh, same thing, went through bouts of anxiety, nervous breakdown, depression, and then came back up, thought about mental health, thought about his journey, spoke about it. And uh, this week, he uh, tragically shot himself in the head and killed himself. And, um, and it's real tragic, real tragic stories. You know? um, 
But you know, uh, I want to bring up that line again from uh, Andrew Stockling's wife, Kayla Stockling. And this is really tragic. You know, the first week they came back from sabbatical, um, the couple came up on stage and shared their journey. And this is what Kayla Stockling said uh, to the church the first week uh, they came back. She said this, you know, we still have a long way to go to work through it. But we are all in. You guys, he loves this place so much. He didn't want to stop. He would have kept on going and going and going. And it probably would have cost him his life. That's how much he loves all of you. That's how much he loves this place. And the tragic thing is that 12 days later, he did take his own life. It did cost him his life. His work cost him his life. Now, it's a really sad story and we don't make light of stuff like this. But I think hearing these two stories is a lesson that we can learn, that we can glean from. Even as a pastor myself, you know, this is a, a real uh, wake-up call for me, you know, that... that you can do the spiritual thing. You know, I, I come to church more often than all of you. I'm here <laughs> six days out of the week. You know, I'm here all the time. And you know, if, if I can be emotionally healthy just by being in church, then you know, I'll probably be the most emotionally healthy person in this place. But interact with me for a couple of hours and you know I'm probably not. Um, but it, it, it speaks to me that there's so much more to spirituality. There's so much more to transformation. There's so much more to wholeness and health than coming to church, than doing spiritual activity. And so I want to talk to you today about emotional health. The Japanese have a term for death by overwork, and it's the term. <coughs> well, this whole control thing is not really working out. Jolene, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <coughs> Pastor needs the other hand to, you know. Okay. Okay. Humor side. I'm okay, I'm okay. I'll, I'll put this away. Okay. <laughs> Learn my lesson. <clears throat> the Japanese have a term, uh, karoshi, and means, it literally means death by overwork, where people die normally of cardiac arrest, stroke, or even starvation because of overwork. And the medical term is occupational sudden mortality. And this really uh, came about during the bubble economy. Several high-ranking business executives in Japan who were still in their prime years, think about mid-20s to, uh, mid to early 30s, would die without any previous signs of illness. That term emerged to, into the Japanese public life. And this new phenomenon was immediately seen as a new and serious menace for people in the workforce. Are you following me? And uh, they realized the seriousness and widespread nature of this emerging problem. A group of lawyers and doctors set up Kuroshi hotlines that are nationally available, dedicating to help those who uh, needed consultation on Kuroshi-related issues. And there was a high-profile case of a man who worked at a major snack food processing company and went for as long as 110 hours a week. Think about that, 110 hours a week, not a month, 110 hours a week. And he died from a heart attack at the age of 34. And his death was recognized as work-related by labor standards of in the, uh, by the labor standards office. And we know that Japanese are really hardworking people. Yet, uh, in 2018, Singaporeans work 635 more hours per year than the Japanese. And some of you all might go like, yes, victory. We beat them, you know. We beat them. Singaporeans, us, you know, as people, we work 635 more hours per year than the Japanese. Now, workaholism is not something just socially acceptable, but it's something we lionize. It's something we admire. We think of it predominantly as a positive trait. 
The truth is this, pathological busyness, workaholism, being unrested, is the one commandment that we frequently brag about breaking. And we brag about breaking it in church. Now, we don't hear people down the street bragging about an affair. Often, you don't hear about, like, oh, last Wednesday I murdered a guy and I, and I killed him. You don't hear about stuff like that. But often in church, you will hear about people bragging about how many days they worked that week, how early they got in, how late they worked till, and how demand they are and how tired they are. We brag about it all the time. We venerate workaholism even whilst we suffer under its cruel tyranny. And this is especially dangerous in a city like Singapore where cost of living is high and societal expectations are high, etc. It's especially so for any of you or for those of you who are educated, upwardly mobile, or are in a career that you are passionate about. Though we can all agree that busyness is bad and harmful in the long run, we still on a deep level believe that if we're not preoccupied, if we're not productive all the time, we are somehow less valuable. True, right? The word busy today is a moniker for important. Consider the answer we get when we ask the question, hey, how are you? 99.9% of the time, the answer we get back is busy, right? Busy, right? We ask how are you and we often go busy. And if we, 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 if we know, pay attention, we hear this across ethnicity, across gender, across social status, across life stage. We hear it you know, from young to old, rich and poor, we hear it from all people. I remember my cousin has a two-year-old boy and he was walking around playing toys one day and he was just walking around in, in a hurry and he just kept muttering under his breath, I'm very busy, you know, I'm very busy, you know, I'm very busy, you know. We hear it across life stage, we hear it across ages. When was the last time you heard someone respond to a question as such, I'm just so bored right now. I'm just, you know, medicating the mediocrity of my life by watching Netflix. You don't, right? Even if they are actually doing it, they won't tell you because we are socially not programmed to respond to a question that way, right? Yes. Think about it. We don't respond to like, oh, I'm just okay. I'm just fine. You know, or these days, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <laughs> we assume that others will admire our over-busy and implied successful lives, yet we grow to be increasingly dissatisfied exhausted and malnourished on a soul level. It's true. And what isn't even our favor is that today, because of technological advances, we literally carry our work with us wherever we go. How many of you remember a day where you had to go to a physical place, sat at a physical desk in order to do work? Today, we carry our work with us wherever we go. For most of us, we don't ever fully disconnect from our work. Is that true? It's true. Because of the modern rhythms of work that are mediated through personal computers and phones, people, in the words of one cultural commentator, they leave the office, but they do not leave their work. They remain attached by a kind of electronic leash, like a dog. Now, that's a strong statement, not mine, someone else's. One study recently showed that 75% of us sleep next to our phones, and 95% of us pick up our phones the first thing in the morning. Talk about addiction. I'm in that stat, so you know, I'm not morally superior to you. Don't worry. <clears throat> More often than not, our days off are days where we are specially at home, but emotionally and mentally at work. Ours is a culture that values the hustle, the overzealous achiever, and the omnipresent email. However, the truth is busyness is not really the issue here. It's not. 
More often than not, we get busy because of a change of circumstance, life stage, a disordered schedule, poor boundaries, you don't know how to say no. Busyness is part and parcel of life. As life gets demanding, we progressively get busier. But whether we choose to admit or not, for most of us, when we are not at work, we are either thinking about work, scheming about work, dreading work, or feeling guilty about not working. It's true. Now, what is that? That is not busyness. That is not busyness. That, I'll suggest to you, is your soul, your internal world is restless. You're in distress. That is not a byproduct of poor time management. That's a byproduct of a disordered internal world, a disordered soul, a disordered heart. Your soul, my suggestion to you, is restless. It's restless. Author Andrew Soroba, who wrote this brilliant book on the Sabbath, I'll recommend that. No, I will have a bunch of recommended reading for you to read. He has this amazing quote. He says this. He says, Our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. It's true. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history. Yet with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied in bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pent for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on the edge. The result is a hollow culture that in Paul's words is ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Powerful words. Let's look at the next slide. Increasingly so, our bodies wear ragged, our spirits thirst, we have an inability to simply sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in the 24-7 living, we seem to be able to do anything but quench our true thirst for the life of God. We have failed to ask ourselves the question Jesus asked of us, what good would it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Powerful, powerful words. And he goes on to say this in the next slide. We have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. Are you feeling encouraged in church today? (laughs) Strong, strong words, but you know, deep down we all know that this brings true. Some of you even sitting here right now, you're just exhausted. You're just exhausted. You are barely keeping your eyes open. You're just psychologically overwhelmed. You're overworked. You're tired. You're not at peace. You're restless. But friends, family, brothers and sisters, brethren and sisters, <laughs> I have gospel for you today. I have good news. Into this human condition of over-busyness, hurry and restlessness exacerbated by a cultural, current cultural climate, our phones, modern society as we know it, Jesus of Nazareth and his way comes to offer a better way. He comes to offer rest, not for your bodies, just for your bodies, but rest for your very soul. Today, I'd like to speak to you on the subject, emotionally healthy spirituality, rest for your soul. Rest for your soul. Let's have a a scripture up to make this sermon legal. Matthew chapter 11. Familiar passage says this, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Catch that last line. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, 
Some of you might not be fluent with um, the language of the Bible. Yoke is not egg yoke. Yoke uh, is a first century euphemism for a way of life, a way of practicing life. Dallas Willard, come on, we need to have a Dallas Willard quote. It's been two weeks. Dallas Willard, my friend, he says this. Ooh, no? No, we don't have a Dallas Willard quote? No? Secret of the easy yoke? No, okay. Oh, shucks, I don't have to quote him, but okay. Let me just move on. <clears throat> I like to say this. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. By lifestyle, I mean the rhythms, rituals, routines, and practices of one's life. And the question I'd like to explore, for us to explore today is this. What practices were present in Jesus' life that made for a life of restfulness? Now, you think about Jesus, the Messiah. Okay? He came to planet Earth with a mission, with a purpose. Talk about being in demand. Talk about shouldering the greatest responsibility of them all. Talk about that. He was responsible for the salvation of mankind. Talk about demand. Everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. He was in demand. He carried a massive, massive responsibility. But not only that, Jesus was a man of compassion. Jesus has more compassion than all of us combined. And with all that compassion, he was drawn to people to different circumstances, to different infirmities all the time. He was in demand, he carried a massive responsibility, and he had compassion. Yet Jesus was at rest, yet Jesus was at peace. How did he, with all the demands, responsibility, and compassion, still maintain restfulness? How did he live his life? And I want to explore that question. What practices were present in the life of Jesus that made for a life of restfulness. And I think we can learn from the life of our Messiah. And through my study of the life of Jesus, I've uh, found four spiritual practices that we can trace to his life. But not only that, these practices have been practiced for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And these are the four practices. He practiced silence, solitude, slowing down, simple living, and Sabbath. Now my goal today is to just cover three of them. Uh, two, if we have no time. Probably not just one, at least two. Uh, silent solitude, I talked about it a bunch already. But today I want to speak to you on the topics of slowing down, simple living, and Sabbath. Are you all with me? Yes? Okay, let's look at the first one, slowing down. Slowing down, the spiritual practice of slowing down. Now what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give uh, broad strokes on these uh, spiritual practices. And uh, at the end of the year, we will have a series on spiritual practices where we'll go in-depth into all these practices. So... Uh, please don't feel that I'm moving too fast. We will go deeper in the year. Are you with me? Slowing down. As a culture, we have a bias towards hurry. Ours is a culture that values speed, efficiency, and quickness. Waiting is bad. Waiting is bad. Getting what we want now is good. Period. This bend towards speed is supported by our language. The first three meanings for the adjective slow would be sluggish, time-consuming, and stupid. Merriam-Webster offers more than a dozen definitions of slow. Half of them are negative, half are neutral. Only one feels positive, not hasty. The definitions offered for fast are far more positive in tone. Being unhurried doesn't mean lazy, uninvolved, casual, or careless. These four words expose our culture's false thinking. Hurry is efficient, hurry is productive, hurry is evidence of my importance. Now, psychologists recently coined the term hurry sickness. It's defined as a behavioral pattern 
characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, an overwhelming and continual sense of urgency. How many of you relate to that? Yeah, you're always rushing. You go down to an MRT station later and you're just brisk walking. You have nowhere to rush to. You're not late for an appointment, but you're just walking really, really fast. Continually rushing, always anxious, always living life as though everything is urgent. Now, the author, Ruth Haley Button, lists down 10 signs of hurry sickness. Can we have those 10 signs up? Irritability. How many of you are irritated right now? I'm taking too long. <clears throat> Hypersensitivity. Restlessness, when we actually do try to rest, but we can't calm down. Compulsive overworking, emotional numbness, escapist behaviors. Being disconnected from our identity and calling, not being able to attend to our human needs. Think about those Japanese uh, executives I talked about earlier. Some of them will literally die from starvation, from overwork. They'll be so caught up in that work, their work that they will stop eating and they will die from starvation. Some people also play land games until they don't eat and die from starvation. Either way. Hoarding energy and slippage in our spiritual practices. The author and pastor John Ortberg, who was mentored by Dallas Willard for some 20 years, tells of this story. Ortberg was the teaching pastor at Willow Creek, a really, really big, mega, mega church. And uh, Ortberg was feeling stuck in his spiritual walk, and he spent some time with Dallas Willard, and he asked him, like, Dallas, how do I get unstuck? How do I progress in my spiritual walk? And Dallas said this to him after a long silence on the other end, other end of the phone line. He says this, Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our life. Think about that line. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, if I ask you today in Singapore, what is our greatest spiritual obstacle? What is of the greatest threat? to our spiritual life as believers. Some of you might list different sins, like oh, it could be pornography, it could be alcoholism, it could be all sorts of different things. It could be the principalities, it could be this power, that power. But none of you here would name hurry as the great enemy of our spiritual life. I think of the line Corey Tamboom once said, if the devil can't make us busy, uh, can't make us sin, he will make us busy. If the devil can't make us sin, he will make us busy. Because here's the thing, Busyness and sin have an ironically similar effect. They both cut us off from the living, restful connection we have to the Father. My suggestion to you today is that we are restless because we have adopted a pace of life that does not permit us to abide with God. We are restless today. Let's have a silence. We are restless today because we have adopted a pace of life that does not permit us to abide with God. Hurrying, being distracted, being restless is the antithesis of what it means to abide. Of what it means to abide. Whether it's through sin or unbelief or even hurriness, busyness and distraction, too much phone, entertainment, either way the result is the same. You are cut off from God, you bear no fruit, and the place of love, joy and peace is burnout, compromise, defeat, anger, sadness and anxiety and this is not the heart of uh, this is not Jesus' heart for you when's the last time you look at a guy who was you know has not slept in five days and just you know really really like in the grind and uh really really productive at work and he looks you know he has eye bags the the size of 
whatever, and they're really dark, and you know, he's drooling a bit because he's not slept. And you look at him and you go, man, that is the life I want, man. You know, that, this, is, this is it. Like, what does this guy have? You know, I, I want that. I was like, man, that is abundant life as, as I know it. None of you will think that way, right? Right. It's true. We look at the ones who are restful. We look at the ones who are well-rested. We look at the ones who seem to seem to soar above the storms of life. And we go, man, man, there is something that's on this life. Like, this guy is doing well. I want that. The simple truth is this. We run at breakneck pace to try and achieve what God simply wants us to slow down enough to receive. We run at breakneck pace to try and achieve what God simply wants us to slow down to receive. And you look at the language of John 15. It talks about bearing fruit. The key to bearing fruit is abiding. The opposite of what it means to abide is to hurry, is to be in a rush. Think of it, Jesus doesn't use the word ambition, drive, grind, gritty. He used the word abide. And this is so contradictory to our current cultural climate, to what we think is productivity, to what we think are the things we need to do to bear fruit. We think more energy, more time, more drive, more busyness equals more fruit. But the kingdom is, is opposite. It's, not, it's, it's on the other side. It says, abide to bear fruit. Now, some of us have been living in life at this pace for a while now. and It will take time to learn to slow down. And we have to practice. And this is our, uh, as in the words of Andrew, our thesis. Uh, you know, we, we uh, started this year with a charge for all of us to learn how to practice the way of Jesus. And the word practice would mean that whatever you do, you're not actually good at, but over time you get better. Think of uh, soccer practice is to a soccer match. Practices of slowing down is to soccer practice, uh, is to restfulness what a soccer practice is to soccer match. Now, there's a traffic light in my house, and this traffic light, you know, I have a beef against it. Now, I think it was, it probably sprouted out from hell because this traffic light, it doesn't make sense, you know. If any of you are in that department, help me do something about it. But this traffic light, the green man goes for 15 seconds. I kid not, 15 seconds. When it comes up, it straight away starts blinking already. There's something wrong with it. 15 seconds, and then it, uh, it's at the red man for some three or four minutes. And so when you, meet, when you miss that 15-second window, you're standing at the light for three to four minutes. And talk about not productive, talk about waste of time. And I was like, this light is the devil. And so, you know, I was... Uh, and it just like messes with my inner anxiety and my peace and all that. And, you know, I, I, I walk home from the train station and I hit this light every single day. And, uh, and I, I, I do this often when I see the green man going up like, sell, 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 okay, you know, I don't want to wait for four minutes, so I'll start running. And uh, I remember once I was just listening to some teachings on, on, on rest, on peace, and then God spoke to me, hey, use this light as your practice for slowing down. Use this light as your practice for cultivating patience and peace. I was like, get behind me, Satan, you know. And, <laughs> and I was like, and so, you know, I, I've, I've, I've taken it seriously. Every time I approach that light and I see that thing blinking and I'm close, you know, sometimes I'm just, I just need to like go, go a bit further and I'll make the light. I tell myself, like, like, hey, I'm just going to slow down. I'm just going to be at peace. You know? And, you know, and aside from that, the benefit is that I don't sweat. You know, I don't like, make my shirt smelly. You know? And now I have a core value where I don't run for buses. I don't run for, for anything. You know? and, 
It's a core value. It's a core value. You know, we, we explored the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 last week. Uh, if you have not listened to that, that message, I encourage you to do so. But the thing that struck me about the story was that Elijah embarked on a journey into the wilderness. And it said that that journey, okay, if you look at Google Maps and you, you look at the maps, that journey would have taken him anywhere from 7 to 11 days. But in scripture, it noted that Elijah took 40 days to complete that journey. Think about a slow, slow, slow walk. And that was the beginning of his spiritual healing. He slowed down. He slowed down. He stopped. He rested. He slowed down his pace of life. And uh, some of you might not walk in Singapore, so you'd have no traffic lights to hit. So how about you practice driving on the, on the slow lane every now and then? Get behind me, Satan. How about, you know, you give yourself the, commit yourself to practice. I'm, not, I'm just not going to change lanes today. I'm just going to like, you know, if I hit a truck, I hit a truck. No, I'm just going to go slow. And practice and cultivate patience. You might disagree, but you know, try it first and then let me know how it goes. Here's my charge. Find every opportunity to cultivate patience in life. Find these things, look for these moments, look for these pockets, windows and time where you can practice slowing down, practice patience, practice not being in a hurry. But I'm not saying that you can come late for church and stuff. That's another <laughs> teaching for another day. Some of you might be like, yo, I'm just not hurried. Slow down, man. 10.30, 10 10.15, what's the difference, you know? But that's another teaching for another day. <clears throat> Okay, the next practice I want to talk about is simple living. Simple living. Simple living. It's very popular now with the whole Marie Kondo thing. <coughs> How many of you threw away half your wardrobe? Yes? Did you say thank you? Did you greet the house? Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah. Move on. Um, this morning, uh, as with all of you all, I woke up this morning. And I woke up... Uh, I, I woke up with... Yeah, yeah, I'm awake. <laughs> Follow me. I woke up today uh, with certain desires. I woke up because um, I desired to come to church. I woke up because uh, I desired to uh, have an ice black coffee with no sugar, which is the way God intended for things to be. I woke up uh, because I wanted to be with you. I wanted to worship together. I woke up because I wanted to teach the Bible. And I, I woke up with different desires and stuff that I wanted to do. And um, my point is this. I woke up with all sorts of desires. And that the, those desires was what got me out of bed in the morning. It got me out of my nice Simmons bed with 1,000 track count. Track, 1,000? 1,000? No. 800? We're not fancy like that. 800 track count, track sheets. On a slow and nice Sunday morning with my aircon blowing, those desires were what got me out of bed. My point is this desire is a great motivator, it's essentially the engine of our lives. It, its purpose is to get out, out of bed, get us out of bed, and propel us into life. But here, but note this: if any point desire is no longer under our control, that means we are not at a, at a steering wheel, desire is driving our life. At that point, we are in trouble. 
If you take a closer look at the dynamics of desire, you don't have to be a philosopher to understand these dynamics. You discover that desire, human desire, is one of those things that will never, ever be satisfied. Thomas Aquinas, you know, and this is a familiar name to some of you. He's a Catholic priest and also a thinker, founder of scholasticism. He says this, uh, he was once asked, he once asked the question, what would it take to satisfy human desire? What would it take to ever feel like I have enough? Like, ah, oh, this is it. I have enough. And the answer he came up simply was everything. Everything. And he went on to say that it's not just about experiencing everything and everyone, but to be experienced by everything and everyone. Every restaurant, every place, every sight, every sound, every sexual partner, we would have to experience the universe itself in order to ever feel satisfied. Now, you might be thinking ahead, like, you know, um, I just need this amount of money and I'll feel satisfied. Or I just need to have this item and I'll feel satisfied. Or I just need to have this from this person and I'll, ever, and I'll feel satisfied. But, you know, let your life play out, or some of you might have experienced this already. You might have that amount in mind, and when you hit that amount, suddenly something tells you, like, hey, you know, I need more to feel satisfied. Everything. Carl Rayner, brilliant Catholic thinker, he says this, in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we learn that ultimately in this world, there is no finished symphony. There is no finished symphony, and... This might be a bit too fancy-spancy for you, but think about, uh, you watch a TV show, and the TV show, you know, like you watch Turn Sing or something, and, the, and Turn Sing, you know, episode 259, it ends on a cliffhanger, and you're like, and it's a Friday, it's a Friday, and you're like, ah! And then you have to wait over the weekend for Monday. That feeling of like, oh, I just need a little bit more, I just need to see a bit more, and I'll feel satisfied. That feeling is the human condition. That feeling is where most of us live perpetually. The feelings of restlessness. We live with this feeling in the language of Carl. Turmoil. I'm almost there. I'm almost at rest. I just need a little bit more. I just need to experience this or that. And what all of them are alluding to, and you know, uh, Mick Jagger has a song, he says, I can't get no satisfaction. Same deal, same deal. Carl Rayner, <clears throat> Thomas Aquinas and Mick Jagger, they all understand this. And what all of them are alluding to is this. The reality is that human desire is infinite. At no point in this life would our desire be satisfied. And because we are finite creations, you know, we exist in one space, we exist in one time, one gender, one life opportunity, one set of uh, skills. Because we are finite and our desires are infinite, put the two together and the result is restlessness. We are finite beings trying to experience infinite desire and because of that, the end result is restlessness. A chronic state of unsatisfied desire. Like an itch, no matter how often you scratch it, that never goes away. A constant desire for more stuff, better, bigger, greater. How many of you relate to that? Yeah? They say that uh, an average adult sees an upwards of 4,000 advertisements a day. 4,000 advertisements a day. Whether directly, when you're passing by, or subliminally, we see an average of 4,000 advertisements a day. Now, some of you are in this industry, so you would know this, and what I'm about to say is really strong, but it's, it's true. All of these, the advertisements, are designed to stoke the fires of unfulfilled desires in your belly. Buy this, do this, have this, be this, want this, go here, go there. 
Think of the perfect couple. Okay, they look really nice, you know, not a single freckle or pimple. They sit on their bed, white sheets, and they have breakfast in bed, which is, none of us will do that with white sheets because you have to clean and all that kind of stuff. You sit there and they're like, you know, with their Kinfolk magazine and walnut, you know, uh, breakfast table. They sit there and they just look rested, happy, and then, and then they're like, buy these sheets. And what the advertisement is essentially saying to you is that if you want to feel rested, if you want to feel happy, you need this set of bed sheets. It's literally an attempt to monetize the restlessness that you experience on a daily basis. And this is a very strong word. So if any of you are advertising, you can talk about it later. <clears throat> Social media, of course, takes this problem to a whole new level. Not just... Uh, from the advertising wing of whatever product company, the rich and the famous, but also from our family and friends who with good intention curate the best moments of their life as we do ours and unintentionally play into what is one of the core sins of the human condition that goes all the way back to the Garden even that of envy, of wanting more, of coveting. Paul Mazur of uh, Lehman Brothers, his senior partner, then he says this famously, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things even before the old had been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his need. This, of course, gave rise to the business idea that we now know as plan obsolence. Plan obsolence. And some of you might be unfamiliar with the term. Basically, plan obsolence is the reason why you want a new iPhone every year. Plan obsolence. It's the policy of planning or designing a product with an artificially limited, useful life so that it will become obsolete or no longer fashionable or functional after a certain period of time. My point is this. There is a multi-billion dollar advertising industry that is at work today that has access right to your heart it is designed on purpose to fan into flame your desire and make money off your restlessness. Strong words. But we all know this is true. We all know this is true. In Singapore, last year, banks wrote off a total of $128.3 million in bad credit debt from January to May last year. According to MAS data, on a per-card basis, all cards are in circulation, Bad credit card debts written off reached $3.34 per card in May 2018, a level last seen in 2005. This means borrowers were persistently unable to repay their loans, forcing banks to write them off. All cards in, the, in, in circulation, $3.34 per card, $128 million of bad debt. People are literally spending money they do not have. Dave Ramsey famously said, famously said this, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. <laughs> it's true, right? Because our culture is built on accomplishment, achievement, and accumulation. The more I accomplish in life, the more I achieve in life, the more I accumulate in life, the more of value, the more of worth I actually am. And we have bought into the lie that says the more we have, the more we do, the more we achieve, the more rested we will be. Not knowing that by committing to these things, it further exacerbates and perpetuates the cycle of restlessness. No wonder we are not at rest. 
I'd like to suggest to you this, that we are restless because we look to find satisfaction in things and we never will. We are restless because we look to find satisfaction in things, in people, and we never will. You know, I recently redid my MBTI test. How many of you have done MBTI? Yes. Any INTJs? INTJs? Thank you. Thank you, INTJs. You have a witness. There's only like, what, 2% of us? Something like that? We are special. But that's not where you get our value and worth from and all that good stuff. Um, you know, so I redid it and I realized that, um, so the side I did it with, uh, the different personality types, they actually have like a one-sentence summary to sum up what that personality type is. And like, for example, ENFP is so cute. It goes like, giving life an extra squeeze. And it's, everything's so positive and happy. <laughs> and so, I was looking, I finished my test, and I was like, INTJ. I was like, what is the one sentence that sums up the INTJ personality? And it goes like this. Everything has room for improvement. <laughs> Everything has room for improvement. And I was like, at first I was like, ooh, I have a witness. But then I was like, oh no. That means that for the rest of my life, I look at everything in life and go like, this can be improved, this can be done better, this can be improved. And I want more and more and more and more, more of people, more out of life itself. I'm wired to constantly want more of life of people. But we all know like all things in life, there is a limitation and a capacity. And when things are not functioning at the level of my expectation or what I deem as ideal, I become restless. I become restless. Here's the truth I'd like us to come to. The default setting of the human condition post-Eden is not atheism, but idolatry. It is to aim our desire not at God, but whatever your desire of choice is. Marriage, family, career, money, sex, education, stem on your passport, success, popularity, whatever it is. But we have to realize the simple truth that ultimately nothing in this life apart from God will ever be able to satisfy your desire. Because desire is infinite, only God can be and is to be the solution. Our infinite desire is a mirror image of God's infinite ability to meet that desire. And because for most of us, myself included, our desire is ungoverned, misplaced, we find ourselves in a chronic state of restlessness at best, or worse, frustration, anger, angst, disappointment, disillusionment, which then leads to a life of hurry, Busyness, accumulation, distraction, suppression, materialism, workaholism, etc. And that further exacerbates our sense of restlessness, keeping us trapped in a state of emotional turmoil, unhealth in our very soul. Unhealth in our very soul. Simple living is not about eliminating things in life. It's not about throwing things out. It's not about downsizing your life. Although I think that, that there is a part uh, to play in that, uh, that goal of simple living. But simple living is simply coming back to the simple truth that nothing in this world will ever satisfy our hearts, only Jesus. St. Augustine famously said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. So here's how we practice simple living. Place limits on the amount of clothes, shoes, Place a limit, you know. I think someone has like a limited hanger. Someone does it in, in our church. They have limited hangers. And so when they buy too much clothes and there's not enough hangers, they're like, okay, I have too much clothes. You know, I'm of the habit like more clothes needs more hangers, you know. And always accumulating, you know. We recently moved and I, we, I saw the amount of boxes you have and I was just 
completely shocked. I was like, I have so much stuff, so much stuff that I honestly don't need. So place limits on the amount of clothes, stuff, uh, shoes that you have, but also time you spend on stuff. Your drive and compulsion for success, place limits on that. And here's uh, what I think is an essential step in, into us discovering simplicity in life, in, into us discovering uh, Jesus as the one who meets our desire. Give to God your desires. Some of us have very pure desires. You know? Some of us want to uh, create a certain standard of living for our family. That's a great desire. Some of us uh, want to make a certain amount of money to live as inheritance uh, for our children. That's a great desire. Those are pure, healthy motives, pure, healthy desires. But where it becomes dysfunctional is that when it becomes an obsession. When it becomes an obsession, something that you constantly think about, fantasize about, and these, and these uh, thoughts rob you of your peace, rob you of your rest, rob you of connection from God. And the way we mediate that is by bringing our desires to God. Say to God today, like, God, I really want a million dollars. I want to be a millionaire. And allow God to meet you at the point of your desire. Allow Him to lead you and guide you in the midst of your desire, to place limitations, to place boundaries for you. And I think that's a simple step we can do into being whole and healthy. Are we good? Yeah. Last practice is Sabbath. Sabbath. And uh, I'm just going to give you a real brief uh, understanding of Sabbath and why we need it. But let's look at uh, passage of Scripture first in Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> Are you all awake? Yes? Rested? <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. But the seventh day God had finished the work He had been doing so. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. In Genesis 2, at the end of the creation story, read, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. After six days of war making, it is done, the universe is complete, and God rested. I'd like you to think about that. God rested. God, the most important being in all of the universe, rested after creating the world. And some of you might go like, do you know who am I? Do you know like, what company I lead? Do you know what my position is? Do you know how much I have to do? Do you know what my responsibilities are? Do you know what, I'm, it's in, what the demand is on my life? And you go, I can't rest. But think about it. God, the most important being in all of the universe, after creating the world, rested. Now think about your own productivity. Compare whatever you produce with like the Milky Way. <laughs> and God rested. Make sure you catch that. God rested. But like you follow me, God who doesn't need sleep or day off or vacation, who doesn't get tired or worn down or grouchy, who is without parallel to any other being in the universe, rested. He rested. In a Genesis account, God establishes a pattern of life for all of creation. God works, so we work. But God rests, so we rest. Work and rest live in a symbiotic relationship. Today, many people think of rest as something they have to do in order to work. We think about it as like, I need to recharge my battery in order to tackle another day of work. In modern society, rest is often seen as the opposite of productivity. Rest is a functional necessity serving the higher end of work, devoid of higher meaning or significance. But after six days of universe scouting work, God rested, and in doing so, He built 
a rhythm into creation itself. We work for six days, then we rest for one. And this cadence of work and rest is just as vital to our humanness as food, as water, as sleep, as oxygen. It is mandatory for our survival, and I'll go even further to say our flourishing. It says, I am not a machine. I am human. To be human is to be limited. And we have needs that need to be met. And when I rest for that one day, after six days of work, I remind myself that I am made in the image of God. It's a rhythm for life. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of uh, Matthew 11, says this. Matthew chapter 11, Eugene Peterson's version. He says, are you tired, worn out, burn out on religion? Come to me and get away with me and you recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Beautiful language. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live free and lightly. The unforced rhythms of grace. And if you know anything about music, you know a rhythm is essentially two things. It's the beats, but it's also the pauses in between the beats. That is the pattern of life that God has instructed for us. And it's no coincidence that after this passage, we have not one, but two stories on the Sabbath. Take a real rest with me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And then Jesus goes on to tell two stories about the Sabbath. The mantra today is, you can do anything. Grit, hustle, push harder. The sky is the limit. That is Babel. That is not Jesus. To be human is to be limited. We were designed with limits. And there is a sacred rhythm we are to honour. Going out of rhythm is what creates restlessness. As the philosopher H.H. Farmer once says, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. We are restless today because we have lost our sacred rhythm of work and rest. Work and rest. Work and rest. It's important to note that rest or the sanctity of rest no, in no way undervalues the importance or dignity of work. To rest without working, there's a language for it, it's called laziness. It's called being a sloth. But however, to work without resting, the Bible has language for it, it's called slavery. That's why God said to the children of Israel after their liberation, remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. Why? Because the children of Israel, as slaves to Pharaoh, had no Sabbath, had no rest. They weren't permitted to take a day off. But now that you're liberated, the fruit of your freedom is rest, is Sabbath. You can rest now. You can Sabbath. In 1793, France, in an effort to increase human productivity, de-Christianized the calendar by modifying the seven-day work week into a 10-day work week. 10 days. New clocks were even invented to reflect the revised week. The experiment, however, radically failed. Suicide rates skyrocketed. It says that the suicide rate multiplied by 10 times. People burn out and the population decreased. Why? It turns out humans were not made to work nine days and rest only one in a week. We were made to work six days and rest one. The seven-day rhythm is sacred. The seven-day week is not the result of human ingenuity. Rather, it's a reflection of God's brilliance. We find this in the Genesis story. In every week, one day is to be set aside for rest. And that one day is called Sabbath. It's called Sabbath. The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word, meaning to cease, to stop working. Now I have a few facts for you. Sabbath is by far the longest and most specific commandment 
in the Ten Commandments. If you were to put the Ten Commandments into a pie chart, the Sabbath command will take up 37% of that chart. It is the only spiritual practice that is listed in the Ten Commandments. But for most of us, when you talk about Sabbath, we go like, hey, it's a Jew thing, or hey, it's an under-the-law thing. And we disregard the Sabbath, but we still hold fast to the nine. We still don't, don't murder, we still don't uh, cheat, we still don't worship other idols, we don't steal. We hold fast to this nine, but this one, the Sabbath command, that's an option. That's optional. That is not relevant to us today. Truth is, if I were to cheat my wife today, I would lose my job. If I stole from the church, I would be in jail. If I lied about church finances, I would be in huge trouble. If I worship another god, I would probably be removed, I reckon. There are nine commandments that if I choose to break, I might lose my ministry over. But if I did not keep a Sabbath day, more often than not, I will be celebrated, regarded as diligent, a go-getter. I might even get a race, maybe. It's true, right? Scholars note that the first time the word holy is used in the Bible, it was used to describe the Sabbath day. Keep the Sabbath day holy. And this is intriguing. You think that God, after creating the world, would erect a temple for himself or a physical place and go, this is a holy place. Every religion has its holy place. You know, think of Islam having Mecca, Hinduism, the Ganges River, Paganism, Stonehenge, Arsenal has Emirates Stadium. But... Holy place, pilgrimage. But this God doesn't have a holy place. Catch it. He has a holy time, the Sabbath. This God isn't found in the world of space, in a temple, on top of a mountain, at a spring, around a statue or a monument. He's found in the world of time. This means to say to us that in order to find God, to experience God, I don't need to go on a pilgrimage to Israel. I don't need to go to IHOP. I don't need to go to battle. All those things are great. There's value there. But to experience God, I can find Him in the world of time. All I have to do is stop, and He is there. Abraham Herschel, a great Jewish uh, rabbi, he says this, that the Sabbath is our great cathedral. You will know that the buildings, the, the monuments, they were only erected after Rome adopted Christianity as its official religion. But before that, the Sabbath was holy. And here's a typical question that comes up. What do I do on Sabbath? Which is our problem. We are always about doing, 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 doing. Is there a checklist? Do I need to check things off? But Sabbath is simply about being. The Sabbath is the day where God has my attention. It's a day when I'm fully available to my family and friends. The Sabbath is a day with no to-do list. It's a day where I don't accomplish anything. Hallelujah. And I don't feel guilty. It's a day when I'm off my email. Sorry for those who email me on my Sabbath. And unless your surname is Tan and you're dying, I probably won't answer your call. The Sabbath isn't a day to buy more or get more. It's a day to enjoy what I already have. The Sabbath is not Sunday church. Hear me in this. Although this can be a part of it, but a Sabbath is historically a day of rest, worship, and delight. It isn't a day to be sad because the Sabbath is a day for the celebration of life in God's good world. And for me, you know, because I, I work on Sundays, I know this is work for me. I'm sorry. It, it is work. I, I do a lot of work here. Mondays are where I practice Sabbath. Mondays is Sabbath for me. And you might think, ooh, Sabbath, this is like noir, chill, binge Netflix, you know. It is not. Sabbath isn't act- inactivity. It's God-directed activity. It's rest, worship, nourishment for your soul. Case in point, I've never met a person that has gone like, they watch like, you know, uh, 
what's a Netflix show, you know, um, Stranger Things, or we've recently watched a Korean show like The Moon Embrace the Sun, you know. Nobody has binged Moon Embrace the Sun and go like, whoa, my soul is nourished. I feel connected to God. Abundant life as I know it. Nobody has done that. You know, the Netflix CEO recently, you know, when, when asked about the different competitors that are coming up, like uh, different streaming services that are coming up, he said, I'm not worried about them because Netflix's competitor is sleep. Think about that. Think about that. They are literally warring against your rest. Ouch. Sorry. I still watch Netflix, but with moderation. <clears throat> and so here, here are some practices. You know, I, we will talk about Sabbath more in the year. And this is a practice that uh, has really been helpful and has really nourished my soul. And I want us to even begin exploring this idea of Sabbath, setting aside a day to rest, to worship, to delight in God. It's not inactivity. It's God-directed activity. So here's a practice. Set aside this time, uh, time this week to try and Sabbath. Set aside a time. You, know, you, you might not be able to do a full day, but start by setting aside half a day, weekend morning, read scripture. And uh, there are some practices that are found uh, from people who have committed, who do Sabbath. And here are some of the practices. Feasting. On Sabbath day, you know, there, it's basically your cheat day. No keto, you know, no, like, you know, veggie diet, none of that. On Sabbath, in order to Sabbath well, it's the wine, the cheese, the fat. Okay? Amen. And reading. Boo. Reading. It involves reading scripture, singing, praying, napping, come on, time with family, close friends, time in the quiet, gratitude. And the last one, it actually made it in the Talmud. It was mandated back in the day that on the Sabbath night, couples are to make love. Now, all of y'all, at first were like, I don't want to do Sabbath, but now Sabbath very appealing, right? You know? Yeah, those are, those are married. <clears throat> Some of you might tonight like, honey, it's Sabbath. Sabbath time. <laughs> it's Sabbath. But some of you might feel that this sounds like a lot of work to rest, right? It's so much work in order to rest. I'd like to read a uh, last passage of scripture for us even as we close this time. Hebrews chapter 4 says, There remains then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For every, anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from His. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. That last line, let us make every effort to enter that rest. Rest is not a byproduct of a lack of activity. Rest is not a byproduct of an opening in the schedule. Rest is something you have to fight for, something you have to cultivate, something you have to intentionally position yourself for. And the reason we are restless as a people is because we have lost our sacred rhythm. We have not honoured the way we were created by Almighty God Himself. And rest is something we have to fight for. I have a last quote from you from a writer named Ronald Roheiser. He's a brilliant Catholic thinker. He says this, We are a restless people. Restlessness is the opposite of being restful. Profound. Restfulness is one of the most primal cravings humans have. We crave rest to the point we identify it with heaven. Grant us eternal rest. Let me die so I can finally get some rest. Sleep is for the dead, you know. That's our, our cultural mantra. Today, 
as our lives grow more pressured, as we grow more tired, as we begin to feel burned out, we fantasize more about restfulness. We imagine a peaceful, quiet place. We see ourselves walking by a lake, watching a peaceful sunset, smoking a pipe in a rocker by the fireplace. Uh, we have a conversation about that. But even in those images, we make restfulness yet another activity. Something we do, then we return to normal life. Next slide. True restfulness, though, is a form of awareness, a way of being in life. It is living ordinary life with a sense of ease, gratitude, appreciation, peace, and prayer. We are restful when ordinary life is enough. That's my prayer for you, that you will learn to slow down, to simplify, to practice Sabbath, and in the place of anxiety, depression, fear, restlessness, you will discover a sense of ease, gratitude, appreciation, peace, prayer, rest for your soul. Can we stand? <coughs> How many of you are going to do Sabbath today? Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe when you keep the Sabbath, then our children's ministry will grow as well. Okay. I'm feeling very naughty, but yeah, let's, let's not talk about it anymore. <laughs> Was that helpful? Yeah? Yeah? Um, how many of you resonate with this? Like, you feel this like, low grade anxiety, this sense of restlessness in your heart. You know, um, there's this. Uh, little thing that I'll try to do uh, every day, you know, um, I would, uh, when I have moments of quiet pockets of time, I would close my eyes and uh, on purpose try to not think of anything. And I realize that, you know, when I do so, often um, certain feelings that I've allowed busyness or work or distraction to cover up, these feelings come percolating to the surface. And I think, you know, if you were to do that experiment right now, you close your eyes, you free your mind of every thought, you'll feel that Anxiety has been a constant companion. Busyness, the sense of hurry, fear, worry, these things might be stuff that you live with. And you might go like, is there hope? Or is this, is this something I have to live with for the rest of my life? Some of you might go like, I'm very worried about work and I'm not even married. Then you get married and you're like, I worry about marriage. Then you have kids and you're like, I worry about my kids. And you, you have your kids for some 20, 30 years before they figure their life out. Oh, I'm still figuring my life out. My mother worries for me all the time. <laughs> In my goal, like, is worry going to be my constant companion? Is anxiety really my friend? Can there truly be rest for my soul? Can I truly feel contented at peace in life? My suggestion to you is that the way of the world would not offer that. Things, people, they will not give you rest. They will not give you peace. But Jesus and His way, His easy yoke, light, free of burden, these ways, these practices are what gives us rest for our souls. Simplicity, Sabbath keeping, slowing down, that's how we find rest. So for just a moment, I want us to close our eyes, put our hand on, on our own heart. And just do a stock take, you know, free your mind of a uh, every thought, empty your mind and just feel for a moment, feel for a second what is beneath the surface, what you perhaps allow life and busyness and stuff to cover up. 